Okay, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, and you're listening to Global Caveat. Uh, and today we have a really exciting guest to talk about something that's a bit heavy. So just a warning for everyone listening, but we have Leah. And um, Leah is amazing. She's been a <laughs> nurse for 12 years. Appreciation to all our nurses. She's done floor nursing, operating room nurse, travel nurse. She's currently working as a nurse advice line and forensic nurse examiner. Um, currently located in Denver, Colorado with her blue healer, Dakota, who is just absolutely adorable and traveled across the U.S. and the world. Did she travel across the world with you? No, I had to leave her behind. Oh, okay. <laughs> for so those just the U.S. Just the U.S. <laughs> for seven and a half years. She's also been to 27 countries, all seven continents, and she can't wait for everyone to be vaccinated so we can attempt to get back to pre-COVID life. So thank you, Leah, yes. for being here. Yes, and <laughs> thank you for I, me. I just wanted to touch back on the sensitive topic. We will be talking more specifically about sexual assault, but we are not going to talk directly about examples right at the beginning, and there will be warnings throughout the episode. So for anyone that might have experienced different things um, in your life, you know, we'll make sure that we note when you can skip to the episode if there are certain things that you don't want to listen to. Um, the episode will be dispersed with a bunch of different information as well that will be super helpful and useful um, to those that have had different experiences and that want to be supportive for their loved ones. Yeah. Um, I was thinking the other day when we were prepping for us that all of us here are Korean. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice when you're with you your go. fellow Koreans. So, um, <laughs> but uh, so Leah, tell us about your work. What's uh, a sane nurse? What does sane mean? Let's start there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so I am a forensic nurse examiner. You might see a couple terms. So forensic nurse examiner is like um, a more broad term for what I do. Um, and then underneath that umbrella, um, I'm also considered a SANE, which is a sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, so I work with both um, patients that have been sexually assaulted, but also patients who have um, come in contact with domestic violence as well. Um, so I, I am just on call and then I come in, get called in um, if there's a case and I complete a, a series of questions and collect um, uh, evidence. And then later on, if it does go to court, um, I can be subpoenaed um, as well to go in and testify on just the um, information that I've gathered during my um, exam. Okay. And... Is this a recent, um, I don't know what to call it. Is it a certification? Yeah, so um, most places do require previous nurse experience. My hospital wanted to have, um, well, we'll only hire someone who's been a nurse for at least three years um, and has completed a, um, a SANE course. Um, so there's different courses out there. I was able to do the one through University of Colorado Hospital, which is actually free to anyone um, with an RN. Um, and uh, you don't even have to do it to become a SANE. Um, there's an online, like 64 hour online didactic portion um, and you get CEUs for it. Um, and then if you wanted to fly it or 
go to Colorado Springs, there's two days of clinicals where you actually get to practice speculum exams and do like practice exams on volunteers. So um, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty cool program and it's great information um, even for someone that doesn't want to become a SANE, but wants more information on how to help sexual assault patients, because um, as nurses, at some point during our career, we're going to come into contact with someone who has been sexually assaulted, um, you know, whether it's something like if you're in the ER and it just happened or someone's still dealing with that PTSD. So I think it's really important to have that background and understanding um, of what's happening to the sexual assault patient um, to better understand them and and assist them with further care. Sure. And you you've been a nurse for 12 years. 12 years. And you recently yeah. got the training as a sane nurse. And mm-hmm. so even though you had been a nurse for 12 years, would you say that the training you went through you still learned a lot of new things that so were very much. valuable. Yeah. What kind of things did you learn? Mm-hmm. So before doing the program, I literally had my only knowledge about how to help a sexual assault patient was like things that I had seen on like law and order SVU, right. Which is like highly inaccurate. <laughs> um, so even working at um, the nurse line as an, um, uh, doing teletriage, you know, I'd have a patient call in and I would tell them this inaccurate information um, because I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought, you know, we see movies like The Hangover, right, where they go in and it's like, oh, I was roofied. But it, there's common misconceptions. Most um, drugs that are used in drug-facilitated sexual assault actually leave the system before the patient ever makes it to the emergency room. Like the act of them coming to and like starting to be aware of their surroundings is the drug leaving their system. So a lot of times their, their blood tests will come back completely clear. Um, mm-hmm. And I had no idea, you know, and I was telling them, Oh, well, you should, you should at least go in, you know, get some, some blood work, see what's going on. Um, maybe someone can, can look and see if there's any, um, any trauma where, you know, down in, down there, um, see if you were assaulted. But in reality, um, the human body can actually go through a lot of trauma without having any kind of external trauma, right? Mm-hmm. That actually shows up. So there's a lot of misconceptions with sexual assault that, you know, especially um, that are shown on TV um, that are just highly inaccurate. So it was really nice to do this course um, and like actually say like, oh my gosh, I've been telling people this totally wrong information, you know? Um, so, you know, example, I, I did have somebody say like, oh, do you think I can eat something? I'm really hungry. And before I took the, the class, I said, oh, you probably shouldn't. I mean, what if there's DNA in your mouth and they may want to swab it? And in reality, we always want to put the patient's comfort above any kind of evidence mm-hmm. collection and DNA is very resilient. Um, so we, you can still get DNA. We don't want to keep patients from eating or drinking or, or peeing, right? So yeah, there's, there's a lot that I've learned from this that, you know, I hope to share in this podcast and 
um, hopefully some healthcare workers will change their, you know, the way that they, they treat their sexual assault patients um, after watching this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, clearly there's a lot of just new information and things where you look back and you're like, wow, I totally had no idea what I was talking about. And you mentioned how trauma, essentially you've learned that trauma can look different from what you've, what your previous understanding was. And so can you talk to us a little bit more about how trauma looks different? What about sexual assault patients that come into a hospital and sees a SANE nurse, what are the specific things that SANE nurses are equipped to um, observe when it comes to trauma? Yeah, and just some of that stuff. Okay, yeah. So I mean, probably the biggest thing that we learn during the program is the neurobiology of trauma. Um, There's every time you see a patient who has been sexually assaulted, they kind of have a different affect, right? They kind of, they present differently. And that's kind of like the first stage of where secondary victimization can come in. So secondary victimization is saying, well, you're acting weird, or you're changing your story or anything like that to where you all of a sudden are not believing that person, right? So they're coming forward saying, I was I was sexually assaulted, but coming in based off of your own previous assumptions um, in your in your life and what you think, uh, how you think a sexual assault patient should be acting, um, then, you know, that makes you treat them probably in a different way, because now all of a sudden you think that they're lying, but they're not. Um, So just to go in, um, you know, I don't want to dive too deep into the neurobiology of trauma, just because um, <laughs> you could, we could talk about this for hours, but just like a little, like most basic overview. So there's parts of the brain, right. That, um, light up when a trauma happens. Um, so when somebody is attacked and it, it's important to keep in mind also that this isn't just for sexual assault, this is for all trauma. Okay. Um, this is kind of what happens is that the hypothalamus in the brain then triggers the pituitary glands that stimulates the adrenal glands um, that then floods the brain with hormones. There's certain hormones that are released, um, which it's also important to know that the amount of hormone um, of each of these hormones is going to be different per person. Um, so you've got the catecholamines and the cortisol, which give you that adrenaline rush, that um, energy for fight or flight. And so sometimes when you see a patient, they'll be a little bit jittery, they'll be wired, you almost think they're on drugs, but they're not. Um, they're just like hyper vigilant. Um, then you've got the um, natural morphine, like the opi- opioids, the natural opioids in the brain that release, and that can sometimes give them the flat affect, um, kind of like really tired. Sometimes they're just like, I really just want to take a nap. Um, I don't really want to talk about this right now. And then you'll get the oxytocin also gets released. And so that oxytocin we know promotes good feelings. And so sometimes you'll get the nervous giggling, the inappropriate jokes, the <laughs> I, I, I'm fine, I feel great. So that's kind of where, you know, all of those hormones that are released kind of um, give those patients a different Um, like how they're going to act is going to be completely different based on uh, patient to patient. That's so interesting because Mm -hmm. I think at least in movies or TV shows, you know, um, 
sexual assault survivors, when they show a scene in the hospital, I feel like they're usually just very, there's a very certain picture of what we expect them to look like. Mm -hmm. But what I'm hearing is all these different parts of your brain get fired up and then your brain gets flooded with hormones. So there's really no telling about what it's supposed to look like. It's just really what, however the body reacts, it's going to react that way. And exactly, it's it's going to vary. Exactly. And so, you know, because of those movies and those TV shows, if someone's not, you know, if an assault patient is sitting there and they're not just like falling into their hands or, you know, just so upset, then we think like, well, they're fine. They don't seem bad, Mm. but, but there's a reason, (laughs) there's a reason for that. So I think that's something that is really important to know um, because we can't decide, you know, it's not, sexual assault is not for us to judge, especially as medical providers, you know, how somebody is supposed to act, react to their trauma. Mm -hmm. Everybody reacts differently. Um, With that, then the second part where um, secondary victimization can come in is the, how these hormones that get released, um, this catecholamines, cortisol, um, the natural opioids and the oxytocin, those unfortunately are most damaging to the memory organs of the brain. So that's the amygdala and the hippocampus. Um, so the amygdala um, specializes in processing emotional memory, like how they felt during the assault. And the hippocampus is important for encoding. So it, what encoding is, is it's taking those memories and they're putting them in correct order of um, how these events laid out, but you get this rush of those hormones and it damages those organs. So, um, sorry, those parts of the brain. So you have someone come in and a good example is, um, like imagine you have this super messy office, right? And you've got all of your memories from this event written on little post-it notes and they're stuck all over this messy office. Some of them Some of these memories are stuck in file cabinets that they're not even supposed to be in, files they're not even supposed to be in. And within minutes, someone's saying, okay, tell me what happened. And your brain is literally running around trying to grab all these post-it notes, which they don't even know where all of them are, and they have to put them back in correct order. Um, And so they found that best recall happens two days after the assault. So what happens is a, an officer will come, talk with the patient, get their statement. Um, then they follow up with them two days later. Maybe their statement changes. And that's where it comes in. Well, before you said this. So now you're changing your statement. Oh, you must be lying. So, but we know that's not, that's not true. They were just remembering it as best that they could at the time. So. The unfortunate part is, too, that if this was a drug-facilitated sexual assault or if alcohol was, uh, was involved, some of this encoding may never, never come back. So not saying that it can't, but it, it might not ever be retrieved. Um, but it kind of like makes sense, you know, when you say like you're, the body, the human body is an incredible because it like it protects you right? This is your brain's way of protecting you from a very traumatic event. It's almost like you're forgetting. It's having you forget um, parts of the, of the trauma. Um, 
but then slowly it starts to come back right. um, after a few days. That's interesting. I've never heard about the, you know, around two days is when the recall is a little oh. bit more clear. And, you know, when you said then, you know, that's when like the police officer comes in and I kind of cringed a little bit because, you know, as someone who works with survivors in my own line of work, police officers are not the greatest folks to talk to for survivors in general. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm also wondering, too, um, what in your training, do they also talk about what it is like for patients to have to keep on retelling and recalling the story? So the more that they do it, is there some kind of like effect to that? What happens? Um, you know, there wasn't too much um, training on that. I think it's I think it's different for everyone, though, you know, like some people want to just forget their past trauma, they want to they want to not talk about it. And other people feel like talking about it does help them. I think it, it's different person to person. And you know, and just looping back around about the, you know, talking with the police, and sometimes they're not always so helpful. I think that they're, you know, in my line of work, I, I work with police officers, too, with I, you know, we give them their the rape kits. And it really depends on the officer, there are some really good officers that have had this training. And I, I think it's, I think this should be a part of all all police training, but they don't get it. They're not, they don't get this, this um, kind of training because it's not a, you know, it's just not a part of their program. Um, But we see, you know, that not only are, you know, healthcare providers too can be a part of the secondary victimization um, just based off of, you know, what they're used to seeing. So, you know, healthcare providers and police officers, it's really important to know this stuff, right? So that they can, they can better, I don't know, assist the patients. So, um, because they, you know, I have had a few times where, you know, I kind of had to remind them like, okay, this is your victim. This is not your perpetrator. So I don't really care why they came in as far as like, if they were drunk or high or whatnot, I don't care. They were assaulted. They are telling me they were assaulted. And so for me, that's what happened to them. Right. And so um, and there's no there's no excuse. I don't care if they were high or drunk when they were assaulted. No one deserves to be assaulted. (laughs) Like there's no excuse for assaulting someone. So I think it's, um, you know, as far as sorry, looping back to your your other question of talking about it and having to retell the statement over and over again. You know, I think it's just, it's different for each person. Some people Mm -hmm. want to forget it and other people, you know, it's, it's almost like if they continue to talk about it and, you know, get it off their chest and, you know, if it starts leading towards, towards a a court date and, you know, um, to get some kind of justice, sometimes that helps the person. So it's just, it's person to person, I think. Sure. Mm -hmm. So like, as as you were saying all of these things and how I mean I absolutely agree that this type of training should be required for anyone working with honestly the general public especially when you see everything that's happening now and the different types of traumas that are going on and has this has this training helped you deal with other types of traumas like other domestic violences not just necessarily like sexual assault Yeah, absolutely. So I see domestic violence cases as well. Um, And I think it's, you know, it's so important because it's a huge public um, health matter, 
Okay. Like it, it affects everyone. So um, whether we know it or not. So they, there was a study done that said about 46% of um, shooters and mass shootings had some kind of history with domestic violence. So even just like some of the most known, like Omar Martin, who shot 49 people at the Orlando Pulse Club, he had Mm -hmm. a history of strangling his, um, his wife. Um, Those charges and eventually got dropped, but, you know, he had that history. Um, and then that uh, John Allen Muhammad, um, if you remember the sniper that was in, um, in like Virginia, Maryland, and DC, that would like shoot people in like um, gas stations and, and what is it, Home Depot from like the trunk of his car. Um, he actually had a long history of domestic violence with his um, estranged wife. And he actually started doing these these shootings because he his ultimate plan was to then shoot his ex-wife and make it look like one of these murders. So, I mean, it's a huge issue, um, huge public matter. And, you know, we can't be just ignoring this just because it's not something that we might not have to deal with um, in our daily lives or it might not have maybe happened to us before. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question or um, did I totally <laughs> go off topic there? I think we went off topic, but that's okay because yeah. that was all super relevant. And, and you know, I even think like your last statement there, where it's like helping people like around us and things, or like you know, it might not directly help us, but it helps everyone. I think that the reality is that everyone knows someone who is either like experienced sexual assault or domestic violence. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, whether you, might you think, know it or not. Yeah, you might not know it, but you definitely know someone. Like, there's mm-hmm. no way that you don't know someone that has mm-hmm. experienced. Um, yeah. um, so, you know, with, with domestic, I think, let me, let me try and hit your last question and actually <laughs> answer it. Um, yeah. So I do see, I see um, domestic violence patients and it's really important for us to kind of follow up them. A majority of them will go back to their abuser. Right. And it's because they don't have anywhere else to go right? This, Mm -hmm. this abuser has literally alienated them um, from all of their friends and family. They will take their phone so they can't call anyone. They will not let them work, right? So they are financially dependent on this person. They will threaten them with the children, right? They will, they're, they're narcissists, right? They know how to like psychologically trap this person. And so I think it's also important um, to realize that domestic violence, when you hear that, you think of someone who's being physically assaulted. And it doesn't always have to be that. There's tons of psychological abuse out there. And that's how it starts. It starts by totally secluding this person away from anyone else that could potentially help them. And then it starts to escalate. Um, And so by the time they've made it to us in the ER, it's because they have a broken arm now, or they got punched in the face, or the final escalation um, that they have found is um, strangulation. So people who have been strangled have the highest chance of um, intimate partner violence homicide if they are to go back. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until even recently that we started doing um, like MRIs or CAT scans, um, CT scans on these patients. Because when you think of, oh, somebody was strangulated, um, 
somebody was strangled. <laughs> yeah. Strangulated is a word. <laughs> um, oh, somebody was strangled. Um, you think like, oh, I'm gonna see like you know in the movies, I'm gonna see marks, like the hand marks, I'm gonna see hand. right. I'm gonna see the bruises. I'm gonna see all of this. And so there was a a small study done of like three hundred non fatal strangulation cases. And only about 15% of those actually had external um, wow. notable markings in photographs. So um, we know that most of this, most of that happens internally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to do that, that scan, right, to make sure that there's not extra swelling going on, that their jugular carotids and vessels, trachea, like it's all okay. Um, and it's, it doesn't even end there. Uh, from the first like 24 to 72 hours after um, someone was strangled, um, you know, we, we give them a, kind of a list, like look for these things, come back to the emergency room or call 911 immediately if these happen, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it can cause a stroke, it can cause blood clots. Most of these, not most of these, but uh, sometimes they can lose consciousness right? And so if they lost consciousness and then vomited and they don't know it and maybe they aspirated, um, you can Mm -hmm. have that Mm -hmm. post-aspiration issues. So yeah, I mean, there's so many issues that can can happen with that. Um, Mm -hmm. And and even then they found that it's, I mean, it's not just like, even if they were to file a report and try to leave, we know that domestic violence patients are at most danger when they're trying to leave right? Mm -hmm. That is the most dangerous time for them. Um, And it's not just even if they do leave, it doesn't just end there. The the highest rate of danger is at least within the first three months after they've left. Mm -hmm. Um, This person is such a narcissist that they will literally, if you, if I can't have you, no one can, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They will track this person down. They will, um, you know, harass their family, their friends, until they find them. So, I mean, it's not just, you know, when people say like, oh, why didn't they just leave? There's so many other factors around that. You don't just, you can't just leave, right? right? You need to have a plan. You need to have a plan. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about, you know, how a lot of the trauma signs, physical signs can be internal, right? And you Uh might not even show up externally. It it makes me think of, um, and, you know, I'm not trying to equate this in any way, but I it, I immediately thought about, like, when someone gets in a car accident and you come out unscathed, but you often hear you should still go to the hospital because your back might feel weird like three months down the road or something might have, like, sh- shook your body so violently that, you know, you should just go get checked out. And it's such, like, a normal thing, at yeah. least you know, in like the accidents that I've seen or known of known from people where they're like, yeah, I still need to go to the hospital because even though I don't have any bruises, I came out fine. Like I still need to go get checked. And I think it's just interesting where something like that is like, it's also a physical trauma, traumatic experience. Right. Um, and I don't know, maybe it is the misconception that because if it's domestic violence or intimate partner violence, where it's like hands on the body, you the misconception is that you automatically see signs of that externally. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like, I don't know. I you don't Just see. because you don't see it, it doesn't yeah. mean that there's no damage to, you know, our right. body or some yeah. parts internally that are very vital. Yeah. Also, bruises make no sense. Like, not just things like super light, <laughs> but like you can run into a wall 
and you might not get bruised and you just like stub your toe and your toe becomes like purple yeah. like no yeah literally <laughs> bruises do not make sense like yeah. it's, it just doesn't um or like so. the COVID vaccine right like my arm was so sore and it felt like <laughs> punched my arm but like there's no like you can't tell i got a vaccine or anything you know it's just like mm-hmm. yeah anyway um um yeah so since we've been talking about the exams and stuff i want to ask about what happens during these exams and maybe like talk a little bit about the differences and what it would be if you were uh, experiencing sexual assault or coming in mm-hmm. for domestic violence. But before we talk about that, I just want to let people know that that's what we're going to talk about next. And to talk, we're going to continue to talk about other things. And you can listen to those things like policies and support networks and what you can do for um, your friends and family and loved ones and anyone that you might know and the different types of policies that currently exist and that we can hope to move forward at the 38 minute mark. So you can skip forward to there now. If you're still with us, we're going to talk a little bit about what goes on during these exams and what you could expect or how to prepare for them or how maybe you could help, you know, someone you know that you're supporting through this process prepare for them. Um, Yeah. yeah, So let's, you know, let's start with, okay, you've made it to the emergency room. There isn't, unfortunately, there aren't scenes at every single hospital. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's good to have a SANE, which is a sexual assault nurse examiner, because if you go to an emergency room, you know, those, the doctors, the nurses, they have multiple patients. And I feel like they don't get to spend as much time um, with the patients. And some hospitals will even like actually send um, a sexual assault patient over to us at my hospital because they just are not equipped um, or trained in how to gather um, a rape kit. Um, so for, you know, for me as a SANE nurse, I could spend like anywhere from two to four hours with a patient, just myself doing my part. And I really like being able to give that one-on-one, right? I'm not rushing the patient. Like, why does this take so long? It's Cause I'm not rushing them and like, sit here as long as you need to tell me what you remember. You know, if they, if they can't remember, just tell me what you remember. Right. So for, so that's kind of the first step is, you know, hopefully you can find a hospital that has a SANE nurse in it. You go there before I even get to you, you have to be medically cleared um, by a doctor. So we want to make sure that you aren't like having internal bleeding. Like, let's say you had, you know, you were also assaulted, uh, like physically assaulted, um, like kicked in the stomach or some, you know, we want to make sure that medically you are, are okay. Then you talk with um, a uh, social worker. And just to uh, preface this, this could be different at every single hospital or, you know, location. This is just what we do at my hospital here in Denver. So then a social worker will come and talk to you um, and kind of make sure that this is something that you want to do. Um, and then they also make sure that the patient is consentable. So we cannot do um, an exam on anyone that is not consentable, right? We don't want to take someone who was just sexually assaulted and then make them do an exam when they're intoxicated, high on drugs, or in a psychosis. Like that totally goes against everything that we stand for as far as like, you know, we we want you to have um to be able to make your own consent to actually doing this exam 
So once they're cleared by a doctor and social work, then I come in and I get to bring them back to a private room. So it's, you know, there's nobody else around. They can talk freely. And, um, you know, I kind of go over their past medical history, um, ask a few other questions along those lines. And then I say, okay, in your words, take your time tell me what happened. And I gather their statement word for word. Some patients will give me like a whole page length um, that I'm just typing out of everything that happened. And others are very just like straight to the point. Like I made him mad. I gr He grabbed my arm and threw me on the couch, right? Depending on what you say. And um, I feel like I should also preface this with, um, I realized that, um, all genders um, and non-conforming genders can be sexually assaulted and assaulted, and they can also be um, uh, be the suspect as well, the assailant. Um, just for this purpose of of flow, I'm just gonna use like female uh, uh, pronouns for the um, for the patient, and then male pronouns for the suspects, the assailants, um, just because we know that. The majority of assailants are males and the majority of, of people who are assaulted are females. So, um, but I, I, you know, I, I don't want it to make it seem like that's all that <laughs> the, the only people who are assailants and, and, um, and patients. So anyways, depending on how, um, on what the patient tells me in their statement is going to drive my, um, my exam. So let's say someone, someone said they licked me on my left breast, they bit me on my right arm, then they grabbed my outer thigh, um, they raped me, um, you know, in my vagina and my anus, right? So from there, I start after I get their whole statement, I start from head to toe. So I start feeling around on their head. Do you feel anything tender? Um, especially if they say that they were hit in the head um, with something. I'm looking for any lumps, bumps, bruising all over the, the body, abrasions. Um, and then I go, um, once I've done that, um, I find any new bruising or abrasions and I write those down. I come back with a camera and swabs. And I will take swabs of each place that I see bruising or, um, or if they, I'll take swabs of wherever they, I think there might be DNA. And then I take pictures of any new bruising. Um, uh, from there, we also do a genital and anal exam. So I'll do a speculum exam on a female, kind of look in. I'm trying to look for any kind of, like, let's say they said, he stuck his fingers um, in me, in my vagina. There can be actually a lot of, um, a lot of sometimes, sorry, sometimes there can be um, like nail scratches, right? Or scratches on the side of the vaginal walls. So that's what I'm looking for. Um, and then I want to see if there's any kind of swelling. Um, again, if they tell me that something happened, but I'm not seeing any trauma there, there's no obvious trauma, that does not mean that that didn't happen. Um, it just means that there was no trauma, uh, no notable markings from that trauma. Um, so we do DNA collection, photo um, collection, and then after the exam, 
we actually do have like a private shower, like a private bathroom. People who have come in in their kind of dirty, either dirty clothes, um, if we end up collecting their clothing, um, or even if we like we don't want them to be sitting in the same clothes, we actually have um, like sweatpants, a sweatshirt, and some some new clothing for them, so they can go shower. We give them their a personalized kit with like shampoos and soaps, and it's you know something to make them feel like you know, they just want to wash everything off. Um, and you can actually see like at the end of the exam, um, when they come out from taking that shower, it's almost like they take a deep breath and it's like, they feel like it's, it's just washed off of them. Right. We know that the trauma doesn't end there. So we want to make sure that we're giving them post-trauma resources. And this includes like advocates, um, therapy, um, legal sources, right? So if they need help financially for like um, restraining orders or legal help, uh, we do that as well. And um, and then uh, places for safe houses as well around the area. Um, we also want to make sure that they get STD prophylaxis medications if they want it. Um, it's too soon after an assault for us to actually check to see if there is an STD. Um, but uh, we still want to make sure that they're getting covered, right? So any trichomonas, um, gonorrhea, chlamydia, we give antibiotics for those. And then if it's within, the, if the assault happened within the previous five days, we can offer emergency contraception. Um, and then if it's been within three days of the assault, we can provide them with NPEP for um, HIV prevention. Um, so. There's definitely a lot that goes into the exam and there's different levels uh, or amounts of time to where um, you need to come in in order for us to collect um, the DNA, uh, any potential DNA evidence. So for like prepubescent patients, um, typically less than 12 years old, um, they have up to three days post-assault to come in and get an exam done um, and then um, or get DNA collection done and then uh, post-pubescent patients so typically greater than 12 years. Um, most places will do up to five days post-assault. My hospital um, does seven days. So you know again this could be different state to state. Um, it's it just depends. This is just um, what they do at, at my facility in my state here in Colorado. Do the patients have, so do they go home with the notes that you've taken and the pictures that you've taken, all that as well? Like, where does that get stored? Because, mm -hmm. and the reason I ask that is because um, in my limited understanding, um, I'm imagining someone who's been assaulted within, let's say, your hospital is seven days time, right? And so any time between then, I don't imagine patients go in with the intention like, oh, man, I got assaulted. So yeah, I need to go get pictures taking I need to go get swap because I this is my active, active steps to get evidence because I'm gonna like, you know, do this, right? It's not really like that. I, I'm, I'm imagining it's more emergent, right? Like mm -hmm. something happened. It, um, it was very physically traumatizing. And, you know, there was a reason that and have them ending up at the hospital in the first place. 
but it wasn't some kind of like preset out plan on their end most of the time. Um, and I could be totally wrong. I don't know what you see when you see the patients most of the time, but yeah. So then like they go and then you collect all this, um, all this information. And I'm just wondering then like, is there like a follow-up? Do like, mm-hmm. do they have access to this information if they ask for it? Like what, yeah. yeah. What comes after? Yeah. So um, my coordinator will actually um, take all of the pictures and put it onto different discs, <laughs> CDs, um, which is like so ancient, right? <laughs> I feel like there needs to be a better option. Um, CDs. And then they, yeah, right. CDs. Um, she puts it on a CD and then um, they get the, what the patient gets is um, any kind of packet of resources, like post-care resources. I give them all the information on the medications that I gave them, any kind of side effects they might experience, when to come back to the emergency department, especially if they were strangled. Um, and then um, we also give uh, copies of like their, their consents and uh, things like that. I don't give them my full report yet. Um, all of that stuff goes to the pictures. All of that stuff goes to um, the DA's office. Um, so the district attorney gets it. Um, and then they, from there, there's, um, you know, the, the special victims unit um, will actually take over this case. And so um, most often um, it's nice to have those officers, right? Those, uh, because they, they have been trained in this. So does legal automatically get involved? If they, if the patient wants to. So, so I think that's actually another good thing to touch on is um, in the state of Colorado, there's actually three different reporting options. So your automatic, automatic thought is, you know, oh, if I go in, I have to talk to the police. You don't, not to get not to get this evidence collection and to get an exam. So there's the full report, which is like everything, right? You want to participate in an investigation with police. And so it takes about um, Colorado. I want to say, I think they're about six months behind on the, on processing the rape kits, which is actually really good. Okay. It's in other states. That is really good. In other states, it's like years. Like what? some states are so backed up that it actually goes past. What happens the, to those samples? Is it even viable at that point anymore? If years have they're passed? They're still, yeah, no, they're still viable. DNA doesn't go away, right? So um, on these swabs, so in, in the way they're stored. So they're, they, they are there, but some states are so backed up that these kids are like going past the statute of limitations, right? Oh so they gosh. can't even be, yeah. So Colorado is really good. Six months is apparently really good um, for processing um, these rape kits. Um, so there's a few different um, few different reports that can be done. So the full report, like I said, is the the processing of um, analyzing and storing the evidence and the full forensic exam, um, and and then you participate in the um, in the investigation. Then there's a medical report, which I think is how Colorado might be different from other states, is that they're, um, the police are given the patient's name and date of birth, um, and they are doing the whole forensic exam, um, and the evidence is stored and analyzed, but there is no investigation, and the police do not talk with the patient. Um, and so, like, why would somebody want to do this, right? Let's say 
let's say they were drinking with their best best friend and blacked out and then they woke up and um, with their their pants and underwear off and they they aren't sure what happened and they don't this is like their best friend for years and years and they don't know what happened they don't know if they want to um you know confront them yet about it or ask what happened but you we do know that you have to get that dna collected right within five to seven seven days for us so um if something comes back with with the evidence right some of that dna then they could potentially decide to raise it to a full report then the um, third type of reporting is an anonymous report so there's no identifying factors are given there's no investigation the evidence is only stored it's not analyzed typically colorado will store it for up to two years but they also get like the full forensic exam with the prophylactic medication so at least with all of these reportings, they're getting the full exam, right? Which is what we want. Like ultimate objective is to make sure that this patient is medically okay, right? So at any time though, um, they can decide to upgrade um, their reporting options. So like, why would someone want to do an anonymous report? Let's say that it's their, it's their husband, that held mm-hmm. held them down and raped them, right? Because just because you're married does not mean you can't be raped by your right. significant other. If you don't want to have sex and someone makes you have sex, that is rape, <laughs> right? If someone mm-hmm. makes you have sex against your will, that is rape. So maybe they, you know, and like we said before, with a lot of these domestic violence issue uh, situations, um, they don't have that option to leave they're not ready to leave mm-hmm. yet. So, and they're not sure if they even want to file a report. What if they file a report and um, nothing nothing comes back and there's nothing they can do, then that just makes makes their significant other angry, right? right? So, um, so there's different reasons. There's why people would want to choose, you know, each report. So far, I've only done, had patients that wanted to do like a full report. Um, but just because someone doesn't want to do a full report doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to me. That doesn't mean yeah. that, that that didn't happen to them. You know, it's, it's all in that person's time, right? Um, it's it's so, nice that there's choice there, right? right I mean, so right. it sounds like Colorado specifically, there's a wide range of choices, mm-hmm. but it's sounding like some states, and I don't know, does it maybe even vary by hospital that the policies might change. And so someone in Kansas or California, or, you know, New yeah. York, it, the, the process can look different from what you're describing. Yeah, one question, though, because, um, you know, I know some folks who may be concerned about insurance. Mm-hmm. And so if, if let's say I'm someone that doesn't have insurance, but I, I know about SANE nurses and I want to go see a SANE nurse, is, you know, can I go is see it one? Covered? Will it be yeah. free or is it covered? Yeah. What's the... Yeah. So um, this is just putting insight to how new this topic is right how how new this topic is being talked about um because we know that people have been 
raped and assaulted since the beginning of time, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it wasn't until 1990 that uh, then uh, Senator Joe Biden brought um, the Violence Against Women's Act to Congress um, before Congress. And it wasn't even passed until 1994. Um, And what this act does is it covers the cost of rape kits, post-trauma care, the cost for investigations and prosecutions. If you do get a, um, if you do get a bill from the hospital, you should always reach out to an advocate. There are different agencies, advocate agencies, and they will help you with that. They will help you figure that out. You should not have to pay for anything um, related to this, this assault. Okay, so definitely reach out to an advocate um, and see how they can help you with that. Here in um, like the Denver area, we have something called Blue Bench, the Blue Bench, and they are awesome. They're awesome, awesome. So definitely try and find an advocacy group um, to help you with that. So with with that being said, um, you know, it's... It's been really hard. This Violence Against Women's Act, when it started off, it covered women who were assaulted. Mm -hmm. And we know that many, many other people um, other than women are um, get it, get sexually assaulted as well. And also the definition of assault, I'm sure, was different back then, too. Right. There Mm -hmm. had to be some evidence or proof to even count as assault versus not. Right. So so with you know, even, I mean, it's, it's just so crazy that this is still going on. Um, so every five years, it has to be renewed. The, this violence against women's act has to be renewed. Um, and it keeps getting held up every five years. So in 2012, it got held up in Congress, um, because, um, Democrats wanted to then add same-sex couple violence, um, illegal immigrants and uh, Native Americans on reservations who were sexually mm-hmm. assaulted to be able to financially um, uh, be covered by this act. Um, so it finally went through in 2013, um, but it took a year of arguing um, for it to go through <laughs> uh, because, um, you know, same-sex couples and illegal immigrants and Native Americans on reservations are not supposed to have the same same care with um, assault. I don't know. Um, okay, anyways, some people's brains think that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it got held up again in 2019 um, because uh, when Democrats wanted to add in transgender um, people to... Uh, be able to benefit from this uh, from this act as well, um, and then also it um, it states in there that anyone who is actually convicted of domestic violence cannot own a firearm. So, you know, without trying to get too political, which I think everyone can know what side I'm on, um, <laughs> without saying anything. But um, it's so this was like in 2019, right? So it is now 2021 and it finally got passed. It finally went through again um, just last month um, where only um, 29 Republicans decided to um, side with Democrats to push it through. Um, 172 still think it's okay for transgender people to 
not benefit from from these uh, <laughs> services. <laughs> so I don't, you know, assault is assault is assault, right? Well, mm-hmm. Like I don't. Anyways, okay, I can't. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, just, it makes me so mad. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so. Um, so since policies don't support us, uh, let's talk about <laughs> things that do our friends and families and our networks. <laughs> yes. Do you so have things, any suggestions for the, like yeah. you know, those kinds of support systems and networks? Yeah. So, you know, we always encourage people, um, at least at my hospital right now, even with COVID, please, you know, if you need to come in, you can definitely bring somebody with you. Um, before, if somebody didn't have a support system, um, we used to be able to call like the advocacy group and they would bring an advocate down to be with the patient during the exam. But because of COVID, um, unfortunately, they've stopped doing that. But but definitely, you know, we always encourage people, please bring bring a support system with you. We know that the the trauma of this is not going to end just after you get an exam, right? It's going to continue on and um, and can sometimes, you know, develop into a PTSD, depression, anxiety. And so we really want to get you help and we really want you to reach out to us for help. You know, if, um, if it becomes to a point where you feel like, you know, you are suicidal or are going to self-harm um, because of these acts, we want you to come into the hospital, like let us help you. Um, you know, this is a, a tragic, this was like an awful, awful thing that happened to you and it shouldn't have, um, no matter what, no matter what, it should not have happened to you. So, you know, um, just know that, you know, find somebody that you can talk to friends or family. And if you do decide to come in, you know, bring, bring that person with you, you know, mm-hmm. you do, you need that support. You, you do. I think, yeah. And I think, you know, and you've said this throughout the whole time, just no questions asked, right? Oh, hi, Dakota. No questions, <laughs> um, no questions asked, right? Like just, I think checking our own assumptions about what, what sexual assault trauma looks like, what domestic violence looks like. And if someone has built up that that courage to speak on it, it doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't have to sound a certain way. There's no perfect way to recall trauma. Um, It just is. I think that's something that's very um, salient in what you've been talking about, you know, in, in your training as a sane nurse too, is just like letting the patient just be mm-hmm. and let them yeah. be and just what you're gathering, the information you're gathering is just how they are at that moment mm-hmm. and letting that be the truth. Right. I, I wonder too about um, folks who don't know let's say they're, they don't know how to find out where sane nurses are. Is it available usually on hospital websites? Like how do you find out where sane nurses go and um, where they are? You know, Google. Um, if you literally just type in sane, uh, sane nurse in Denver, Colorado, there's resources on, on Google that will pull up. Like there's a sane nurse at this location. Okay. Um, you can always call the os- the hospital and talk with the operator and just ask them, hey, do you guys have a sane nurse there? Mm-hmm. Um, and they should know. They should be able to to look that up. So mm-hmm. just calling calling the hospital or even if you were to show up to an emergency room and just say, 
you know, do you guys have a sane nurse here? Or do you know a place that does? They should be able to tell you that. Um, if there's a, um, a nurse line to call, call them. If you don't have access to the internet, um, like a lot of insurance companies too will have a nurse line, call them. We want to do the work for you. We will find you a place to go. Okay. And let's say, Leah, that I've, at least in Colorado, let's say I, my assault happened over seven days ago and you find that out early on, do, will I get turned away? You never get turned away. We can't collect any like DNA evidence, but we can still provide you with like the prophylactic medications um, for STDs. We're kind mm-hmm. of out of the realm for emergency contraception and for, um, uh, for NPEP, for HIV prevention. But we can still, you know, you still want to come in, get like medically cleared. Um, we can still take some photographs, right? And, um, and just kind of, and just listen right? Listen to what happened. Help give you some resources. You know, I did have a caller once when I was working nurse line that was assaulted and never went in and then found out she was pregnant. You know, um, what do I do then? What mm-hmm. what happens then? Because no insurance is going to cover an abortion, right? But then she didn't have any money for an abortion. She does not want to carry her, her rapist baby. So um, I went on and found resources where, you know, they, she can reach out for abortion financial resources. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, there there are resources out there. I just it's unfortunate that they're not like widely known, sure. um, you know, so um, but I think even even if it is past, you know, that five or seven days, like still come in. Like, let us make sure that you're okay and, you know, get you medically cleared and get you some of that STD prophylactic medication, at least. Yeah. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just going to take a deep breath now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, is there anything you wanted to add or mention that you haven't mentioned yet? Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to talk about um, tonic immobility. Um, that happens mm. during can happen during sexual assault um, because okay, it's, yeah. it's another part where like secondary victimization can come in as mm-hmm. well and self blame. Um, so there's something called rape induced paralysis. Um, it can happen um, up to it says about up to fifty percent of um, rape victims have um, experienced this at some part of their assault. So. Um, whether it happened during the entire thing or happened, um, you know, one part of it. But basically, it's an autonomic response that the body gives off. So it's uncontrollable. Um, usually, the survivors' eyes will close, their increased breathing, and they have complete paralysis. They can't move, they can't talk, um, they are just laying there, right? Um, mm-hmm. But they are totally cognizant of everything that's going on around them. And so, a good you know, it happens in animals too. Have you ever seen like fishermen that put the fish back into the water and then the fish kind of goes belly up mm-hmm. for a minute and then all of a sudden they swim off? That's yeah. that's like a tonic immobility. Okay. I also don't understand how that is an enjoyable sport. Yeah. I don't <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like touching the worms. <laughs> so 
most often this will happen um, in survivors that have had previous assault. Um, and so what what happens is like the, a trauma happens, the amygdala detects the threat, activates the hippocampus. So it's all of these, all of these um, parts of the brain that we talked about before, right? That get lit up mm-hmm. during, um, during an assault. So that, that um, HPA access um, that releases all of those hormones that we also talked about, it basically floods the body with those hormones and it shuts down the body. And so when this happens, I mean, you have like self-blame, right? Patients mm-hmm. saying like, why didn't I fight back? I just laid there. I couldn't move. I don't know what happened. Um, I like just clammed up. I, I you know, I should have, I should have protected myself better. Or you have law enforcement, again, with that secondary victimization. Well, why didn't you fight back? Maybe you wanted it. You know, that's, um, you didn't do anything. There's no, you didn't even try to defend yourself. Um, And then there's like the perpetrator. Like, let's say it was consensual at first, right? Let's say it was. And all of a sudden you, you know, couldn't move. And you wanted them to stop, but you couldn't stop. So, um, so the perpetrator is saying, well, she was just laying there. She didn't say no. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't, you know, and that's where we need to take consent even a step further. So there's consent and then there's participation, right? If your partner has stopped participating in having sex with you, you need to stop if they're laying there unconscious, mm-hmm. not responding to you. You need to stop. Um, your consent ends there. Okay. So, um, like a, a study of this, uh, a case study that was done was, a uh, this girl at a frat party and, um, uh, she went into this tonic, um, immobility state while having sex with a frat guy. Then he gets up and leaves and his frat buddies go in one by one Mm -hmm. and rape her. And in the police report, it says um, uh, during their interviews, well, she didn't tell us to stop. Well, well, she didn't tell you to keep going. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She wasn't moving. So, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's this whole, you know, we always talk about consent. Let's talk about participation. If someone's not participating mm. in this act with you, that is not consent. Right. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit because I think, you know, that that gets missed a lot and gets mislabeled a lot as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important one to include, um, mm. you know, when we talk about consent and what that looks like, how consent can also be retracted, right? One yes can doesn't mean a yes for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it it kind of brings me back to Diana, our second episode about sex education with pet, you know, mm-hmm. and how we talked about this idea of consent and how we teach it to young kids and it doesn't have to be sexual. It's just like, can I give you a hug? No. Okay. Move on with your life. <laughs> like no one's entitled to a hug like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just kind of an aside where my brain went, but, yeah. um, it's also, I think, you know, mm-hmm. I was just going to say how the way that it's taught to kids is so messed up. It's a lot of kids it's like, no, no, give your uncle a hug, give your uncle a kiss or something. You're like, mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so this has all been a lot. <laughs> okay. So we're wrapping up the episode. Are there any last minute things or thoughts you want to say after what you just mentioned? 
Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, tell anyone who has been sexually assaulted and made to feel, you know, that it was your fault, that it was not your fault. And I make it I make it a a point to say this to all of my patients. This was not your fault and I get the same response every single time. Sure feels like it. You know, and there's different reasons like, you know, I shouldn't have had so much to drink. I shouldn't have, you know, been so trusting with this person. I shouldn't have, you know, been walking outside at night. I should have been looking over my shoulder. I should know that person should not have assaulted you. And that's where we need to kind of change the narrative of that. Like it, it is not your fault. It's never acceptable for someone to assault you. Uh, we shouldn't have to be looking over our shoulders constantly or worried that we're going to make somebody mad and they're going to assault us or watch what we say to our significant other because we're afraid that they're going to, you know, hurt us in some way or whatnot. It, um, it's not acceptable ever. So no, it's not your fault. Dakota agrees. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, and so, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to end with as a message to people who have been assaulted. And for those who haven't, you know, there's this really good part of this (laughs) book I'm reading, um, uh, called No Visible Bruises, um, by Rachel Louise Snyder. Um, and she really, like, hits the nail on the head with this. Um, she says, Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions that if things were bad enough, victims would just leave, that restraining orders solved the problem, that going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children, that violence inside the home was an adequate, sorry, that violence inside the home was something private, that lack of visible injury signaled lack of seriousness. And perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing at all to do with us. And we know that's not true. It has to do with all of us. Um, And it starts with us to advocate for our friends, our family, um, and those around us who have had to experience such an awful, uh, awful thing. Thank you for that. And I think just... Um, to end it, we want to say if you're listening and you are a survivor, we believe you. You don't have to explain yourself. Um, and we hope that this episode, whatever portions you listen to, if you did make it um, through the episode, that it was helpful in some way. And that we do encourage you to find the power within yourself to reach out to resources, reach out to folks who you trust. Um, and you know, we have a lot of work to do as a collective human population. <laughs> and um, I just want to say that at least over here at Global Caveat and obviously with our guests today, we're all committed in some way and um, supporting our survivors and making sure that people have resources. So um, thank you, Leah, for sharing and talking about your you know the whole process and what a sane nurse is but even more than that just advocating for um, patients and our survivors who um you know for unfortunate reasons end up at the hospital and they need support
support. So thank you for the work that you do. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that's the episode. Thank you so much, Leah, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her at Off the Clock Nurse on Instagram. Yes. But if you need any assistance or information more immediately, please reach out to one of the resources that we have listed in the show notes. And um, the things that you should check out uh, Leah's page for are general information. And if you have any like more general questions like that kind of thing, um, if you have anything in particular that you need to address, definitely reach out to one of the resources that can help you more immediately. Yes, please note that this episode is not a replacement for healthcare or any kind of therapy, and neither is Leah, our guest. Um, and so please refer to those resources. Um, and if you are located in Colorado, a lot of these resources are specific to that. And so hopefully it will be helpful to some of our listeners. Um, as a reminder, if you do have any questions specific to Global Caveat, you can reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at Global Caveat. Yes. And thank, and you, to thank you to all of you, our listeners and supporters, for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Hot Coco for producing our music. Thanks for listening.